Glad to see you all here. Yesterday, Saturday, 28 years ago, Lisa Corinne Barger said, I do. I said, I do. The preacher said, you were. So if you see <coughs> my wife, you can look at her and say, oh my gosh, you made it with him. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, I'm so glad that you're all here today. Um, hey, quick announcement, just to remind you, today, big day, baptism at um, Ron and Peggy Marsh's in their pool. We're going to be there from four until six. There will be uh, pizza and beverages and some other fun stuff because my wife of 28 years knows me and knows that if I were planning the party by myself, we would only be having pizza. Okay, no napkins, no nothing. We would just be having pizza. So anyway, she's got the rest of it taken care of, so we're kind of excited about it. Um, I'm also told that it is an open pool for anybody who wants to come. You just need to bring your own swim trunks and you need to bring your own towel, okay? So it's open pool, so if you want to swim afterwards, you are more than welcome to do that. And the pool was 85 this morning? 83 this morning, so that's not terrible. You can handle it, because I'm going to handle it, okay? So we're going to do this today. So anyway, if you want to swim, uh, this is a big day. We've got a couple of people, a couple of um, kids that are going to be baptized. We're really excited about it. It's going to be awesome. I love doing baptisms. And um, this is when the church body becomes a church family. And uh, don't miss it. Don't miss it if you can. be awesome. Anyway, so there we go. Okay, I was thinking about something um, this week, <clears throat> uh, and this crosses my mind from time to time, um, but even though that I have this job where my title is pastor, I have to remind myself, and, and I know a lot of clergymen have to do this too, I have to remind myself that I'm a disciple first. Now, now this is really important because now this, might, this might seem... Um, pretty obvious, but sometimes it's not because we can get lost up in the actual job. But my job is pastor, but my calling is disciple. I'm, I'm a disciple first. I'm a disciple, then I'm a husband, then I'm a dad, then I'm a preacher in that order. Because those are the things that I was called to. I was called to be a disciple first, then a husband, then a dad, and then a preacher. And it's important that I put the disciple and discipleship at the head of that to put it in the right order because being a disciple of Jesus influences everything else. Does that make sense? It, it, the discipleship influences my role as husband, as my role as father, and as role as preacher, and as friend, and as extended family member, and as community citizen. So I have to get it in the right order, disciple, is the first one, and that, that needs to be the first thing. But more importantly, not just the order to all of this, but more importantly, like you, I am learning how to listen and respond to God. That's our definition. If you want to know what a disciple is, a disciple is someone who listens and responds to what God is saying. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can unpack with that, but fundamentally, that's our working definition of what a disciple is. 
And I know that over the years that I have grown, both personally and especially professionally as, as a preacher, because um, when I first got out of seminary, my, my thought was the, the preaching task, this thing that I did up here, um, was about knowledge transfer. Preacher goes to the text, opens up the word, mines for data, polishes some piece off, and then presents it to the congregation. And oh, God help that, that congregation that I started preaching to. And because they got a lot of like college-level lectures. And I'm sure that it was important and it was part of the process that I had to go to, through in order to learn those things. But after a couple of years, the Lord started to deal with me and said, you know what, this is more like art. Like, hmm, that's interesting. And, and then over time, I've noticed that I've, I've kind of changed a little bit where I really try to see the, the task as a journey where we're all together going on a journey and as we're going on that journey, I'm trying to point out places where the scripture and, and real life intersect or, or converge. And, and, and I feel like now, after I've been doing this, I don't know how many years, um, that there's an evolution that's occurring again. And hopefully you'll be able to see it you know, over the next you know, few weeks, months, and whatnot. If we're learning to love God as a corporate body, as a church, on, sun, on Sunday morning. If, if that's what we're here to do, if we're learning how to love God as a group of people, then central to what we do is always worship and testimony. And we just worshiped. How many of you feel like you worshiped this morning? Yeah? Oh man, that was good. That was good stuff. But testimony happens in a variety of different places. Testimony happens when you're talking to each other and, and you're, you're saying, here's what the Lord has done. That's why I love the way Jeannie just prayed. She, she goes, I want you to do something. I want you to think about the week and where God showed up for you. And I talk to Christians all the time, and I, you know, I might ask the question. I'm like, hey, you know, where do you think God might be working? And oftentimes they don't have an answer. Guys, I, I don't want to be condemning or make you feel bad, but that's kind of a problem. Because God is active in our lives and, and I, I think sometimes we just miss the things that he's doing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss a thing. I don't want to miss something that he's doing because it's usually so cool it blows my mind. And, and, I, and I like that feeling. That's what I want to see happen. And so testimony happens when we tell each other kind of what's going on. The other place where it happens is when we open up the word and we see what God has done in the past and we notice those things and we talk about them, that's testifying to his nature and character and his goodness. Does this make sense? This is a big deal, I think. <clears throat> and so I've been trying to take that seriously um, especially in the series that we've been doing with, with King David, and just saying, what, what are we testifying to whenever we open up the word? I mean, we sing and we pray and worship, but when we open up this Bible, we're saying, hear who God is. This is the story that these people told. And by the way, he's not done telling the story, and you get to be a part of it. Pretty exciting, I think. And I think Holy Spirit will help us um, uh, uh, help teach us along the way if, if you know we um, if we ask him to if we ask him to be a part of that 
And so today's passage, I think, combines some of those, those things that I like a whole lot, which is the historical sort of cultural things in the text. Um, I really think that we, we do ourselves a disservice when we ignore those and we jump strictly to the spiritual. Um, I think if we ignore kind of the historical and cultural context, we end up in some really goofy theological places, okay? We have to be careful of that. And so today's passage, we're gonna deal with a little bit of that, um, you know, just a, a little bit, but ultimately, I, I hope that we're gonna be test, um, testifying to God's character. So I'm gonna invite you to go back into 2 Samuel chapter seven. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might wanna turn there or punch the number in. If you don't, that's okay. I'll have uh, some of the uh, text up on the screen for you to read. So, Last week, we, we broached this chapter for the first time. And you might remember that David is sitting in his palace and he is considering the possibility of building a temple for God. Essentially, he, they, they want to build a palace for God to reside in. So David's the king, he gets a palace, and God is God, and he's he gonna get a palace too. We call it a temple. And the idea here is David's in his palace, God's in a tent. And for whatever reason that strikes David as wrong and, you know, or not acceptable is probably the best way to say it. And so he talks with the prophet, a guy named Nathan, apparently they're buds, and they're just having a conversation about this thing, and Nathan agrees with him and says, yeah, it's a pretty good idea. Maybe we ought to build God, you know, his own house. And then God steps in. Now, interestingly enough, I asked the question last week. I said, do you think Nathan was wrong in his advice that he gave David? And you'll notice that I didn't answer that question. Interestingly enough, a lot of you did afterwards. It was really, really interesting to hear kind of your take on things, and I appreciate that. But I think those are things that we ought to wrestle with because we may be in that position uh, at some point in order to offer godly advice to someone else, we probably ought to have a plan on how to do that. So you remember this conversation was happening back and forth. God steps in and he says, no, I don't need a palace. He says, this is, I've never asked you for that. And um, God kind of shifts gears and he has more for David, more for the people of Israel. And... <clears throat> In verse 11 uh, through about 17, he prophesies over David. Um, let me just kind of show this to you. This is just selected from that, that passage. Um, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking about um, David's kingdom. And then to David, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this is rather fascinating because there are three things here that, that God mentions by name, and they're symbolic of, I think, some, some uh, key points that we need to pay attention to. The first thing he talks about is your house. And, and when we talk about... Um, the house of David, we're talking about the lineage of David. So we're talking about the bloodline. Does that make sense? And so he says, your house um, will endure forever. That's a really long time, right? Your house will endure forever. But then he also mentions this idea of, of kingdom. 
Now, whenever we talk about kingdom, especially biblically, but in, in Old Testament, it's packed with meaning. And okay, there's a lot of things that we got to pull out of there and try to understand. But in essence, whenever God is talking about his kingdom, he's talking about an environment of peace. An environment of, and the, the term is shalom. You've heard this term before, right? Okay. So shalom often is referred to as peace, but this type of peace is not necessarily related to my personal inner tranquility. It isn't about going to a yoga studio. It's not that kind of peace. But rather, the kind of peace that we talk about biblically is when everybody is in relationship with everyone else and living up to their responsibility and there is equilibrium. It's that kind of peace. It is relational peace, not just personal peace. Does this make sense? And so when we talk about the kingdom, that means that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And oh my gosh, how many of you would like a little shalom in this country right about now, right? Oh my word, yes. So he says, your house and your kingdom, this, this idea of peace, this idea of equilibrium, that will endure forever before me. And then finally he talks about the throne, your throne will be established forever, and throne is almost always referencing authority and power. So we got some big ideas that are going on here, right? Your house, your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. There's a lot of forever here. So we have this going on in the passage. And what's really important to note, and, and I, I, if you read through the passage, and I suggest you do, um, kind of walk through this Second Samuel chapter seven. There, there, there's this, there's this idea. Here. There's no requirement on the part of David. This is an unconditional thing that God is doing. It doesn't say, "Well, David, if you do this, then I'm going to do that." That's not in here at all. It's unconditional for David. There's no requirement to do anything for it. And see, this is where history and culture become really important to understanding the text. Because it's, it's easy to, to miss this. I think history and culture kind of illuminate the scripture passage. So, around the ancient Near East, and when I talk about the ancient Near East, I'm talking from uh, kind of the northern Mesopotamia area down through Israel through Egypt, okay? So think about that kind of corner of the Mediterranean it's been in the news a lot over the last couple of decades. You've probably seen some of these things before. Anyway, you've got this uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, 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 civilizations and cultures that went along with it. And if you go around there, sometimes kings would give certain gifts or certain privileges to their vassals, to their liegemen, if you like Game of Thrones, their bannermen. But you understand, you have a king and there's all these other nobles and they all kind of swear fealty and faithfulness to that king and that king will dole out gifts and, and try to keep them happy so that there's no rebellion in the land. And you know, I mean, it's politics. At least that's what it smells like to me. <clears throat> but essentially, um, it's a promise covenant, and it has a name. It's called a royal grant. Very common. 
And that royal grant has certain features and certain characteristics and a certain structure. You can go find these documents. They do exist. Now they were clay tablets, but, you know, it's the same thing. It's written down for us to understand. And so what God does here is he gives David a royal grant. And he gives it in a form and a format that David would understand. This is a big deal. God appropriates something else from culture, uses it for his purposes, and passes it on to David. And I think that there's a lesson here. I think there's a little insight into the character of God is that if God is willing to speak to David in a language he understands, there is a very good chance that God will speak to you in a language that you understand. And that's good news. At least I think it is. That he will actually speak to you in a way that you get. Now, I've often said to myself, I've often written this in my journal, and I've said things like, God, I don't doubt your goodness, but I, I do doubt my ability and capacity to understand you. And then I read a passage like this, and I think, nonsense. God understands my language. He understands Northern Yankee or whatever it is that I, people say I have an accent. But I talk like the newscasters talk like, okay? No, I'm just kidding. And he's going to speak your language too. Even if English isn't your first language because God's not an American. And I think this is an important thing is that God actually speaks to us in a language that we'll understand. And so if you're having a hard time understanding him, then you go back to him and say, oh Lord, I, I don't get this. Please speak to me. Lately I've been getting one word answers to things because I think that's all I understand right now. I probably understand grunts too, you know, kind of, I hear God laughing an awful lot, like <laughs> that kind of laughter. The point is, is that he's speaking to me in a language that I understand and I'm thankful for it because at least he's speaking and he'll speak to you as well. So if you look back throughout the Old Testament, there's a series of covenants that God makes with humanity. He makes a covenant with Noah and he fleshes that covenant out with Abraham and it's fully committed with Israel at Mount Sinai, going through the history of Israel here. And now it's all sharpened with David. This covenant, this agreement, this relationship that God has with human beings. And every single time he does it, he does it in a format that they understand. And I think there's this underlying message here. When God is giving these covenants and it's going throughout history, and it's moving along the timeline, that ultimately what God is saying to his people is this is going somewhere. This isn't just stagnant. This isn't just an isolated event that I'm doing this relationship with you, and I'm doing it in this way, in a way that you understand, because this is going somewhere. There is a point to it. There is a purpose to it. And I think sometimes we get lost in our daily life because we forget that this is going somewhere. 
because we got kids to get to school and we got bills to pay. Oh, we got lots of those. And then on top of it, gas prices are going up and we got plenty of worries and we've got worries upon worries and then we got health issues and then, oh my gosh, all the things that are going on in the world today and we kind of tune all of those things out. But what God is whispering to us throughout his text is, this is going somewhere. I'm still here, I'm still on the throne and you're gonna be okay. That's an important thing. And I, again, I, I don't know what else to call it. It sounds like good news to me. There's purpose and intention, and it's threaded throughout the history of Israel, and it's threaded throughout the history of humanity. Now, Nathan hears from God. God has essentially given the covenant to David through Nathan the prophet. But the thing that I want you to do today is look with me at David's response to the covenant. Okay? This is where we're going to spend our time. How did David respond? So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? Remember, shepherd in the field, hanging out with sheep, now king of a country. I would say that's a promotion. And as if this were not enough in your sight, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. I want you to notice that he went and he sat before the Lord. Um, if we translate this literally, it's he sat before the face of the Lord. Uh, oftentimes, whenever um, we talk about uh, humanity uh, doing something with God or before God, it's before his face. And it, it's, it's designed to show us the relationship that's involved. That's what the language is speaking about. There's a relationship here. And throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, sat before the Lord, is used Um, in conjunction with two sets of circumstances. And you really need to understand this because I think this is really important. Uh, Typically speaking, when someone sits before the face of the Lord, the first reason is to express sadness, grief and uh, mourning, most likely. Uh, They sat before the Lord and there's there's a sense of just deep sort of uh, emotional anguish in the heart. And the other set of circumstances, like this one, is when you sit before the Lord in gratitude. And you're in awe and in your own thanksgiving for something that he has done, so you sit before the Lord. It's decidedly a posture of humility. I'm not talking about a false sense of humility, it's a very real sense. There's a very real sense that when we're in mourning or grief over something, sadness, uh, some kind of sadness because we've had some type of loss, that you're humbled. And on, on the opposite side is that you can also be humbled because God has done something so great that you cannot do it for yourself. And so it is appropriate, <laughs> at least in that moment, um, to humble yourself and, and sit before the face of the Lord. 
But then David's um, tone kind of changes a little bit. I want you to see this in verse 22. He says, How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. We just sang about it, right? How great thou art. Which, by the way, love, love, that, love that hymn because um, my grandfather used to sing it a lot. It was one of his favorite hymns. And um, some of you have heard this story before, but um, uh, my dad and I went and picked him up, and we were driving him, and he was in the back seat, and he would just start singing hymns. And this was one of the ones that he did. And so every time I hear all of you sing it, I hear my grandfather sing it. And I used to think it was about nostalgia. I really did. And then I realized, no, I'm singing with my grandfather because I know my grandfather's in the presence of Jesus right now. And it's kind of a cool thing to think about that a little bit. To say how great you are, Lord, right? And David does that here. So the first is he acknowledges his own position in a, a, a posture of humility. Um, and he takes that on, but then he, he slips into this, how great you actually are. And the only way to describe that is this is worship. This is worship. This is ascribing worth to God. You are great. You know, who am I? But more importantly, you are you are great, and there is no one that is like you. It simply extols the greatness of God. That's all he does here. And by the way, if God is good, if you accept that, it is always appropriate then to worship no matter what happens. If God is good, if you accept that premise, then it doesn't matter what happens. Worship is always the appropriate human response. Always. Because he is good, because he is great. If you are prophesied over, it is appropriate to worship. If you receive blessing, it is appropriate to worship. If you receive a miracle, it is appropriate to worship. If you get an answer that says not yet, it is still appropriate to worship. If you are given a yellow light and you need to wait for something and be patient, it is still appropriate to worship. If God even says no, absolutely not, still appropriate to worship. Why? Because he's good, and he's saying those things for your benefit. We don't have to like it, but it's helpful if you understand that he's good, and it's always appropriate to worship no matter what you hear from him. Always, always. So your default ought to be worship. That's the default here. Now, finally, David does something else entirely. I really want you to see this because this actually, this one surprised me. So here it is. This is verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. He's worshiping. Right? Beforehand, you are great. Now he's like, do this so that your name will continue to be great. Right? David is a fundamentally saying, yes, do it. Lord, I want this. If this is the blessing that you want to give, this is what I want. Ultimately, he receives 
the blessing. I want you to think about this for a moment because I think this is a big deal. This was very convicting for me and I spent a lot of time in my journal about this this week because it, it hit me hard. How many times have I been blessed and not received the blessing? Ooh, got a little quiet in here, didn't it? <laughs> but I think that happens to us is that we, 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 we are blessed in some way, but sometimes we don't receive the blessing that it actually, actually is. And it, it kind of reminds me, it's like getting a gift on Christmas Day and just being excited about the wrapping paper. Come on, man, open that bad boy up. I mean, I, look, I'm an only child, so Christmas was like the coolest thing because most of the presents underneath the tree were for me, right? And we just tore that up. I mean, like, and the paper's flying in the air and that kind of, because it's not the wrapping that's important. It's the gift that's inside. You need to receive the gift. You're not just, you know, your kids will teach you how to do this. They're going to look at what's underneath the tree and they're not going to jump for joy because there's packages under it. Mm-mm. No, that wrapping paper's gone. And you know this, you've seen this before. So keep that in mind is that when God gives a blessing, it's like that. We're not excited just about the wrapping paper. We need to receive it and open it. And that's exactly what David does here. Do as you promised. Lord, bring it on. If that's what you want to do, if you think that's what's important, that's what I want for, uh, for me, for my household, for Israel, for all of it, I want that because that's the blessing that was prophesied over him. And by the way, Lord, this will help your name to be great forever. God understands that. He didn't need David to tell him that, but David's acknowledging the fact that when God gives blessing, his name stays great. Now, there's one other thing that we need to deal with. One more thing I think is, is quite important here. Um, when we think about the house, the lineage of David, when we think about the kingdom, the environment of David, and we think about the throne, which is the authority of David, all of those have faded into history. All of them have. In fact, the house of David divided after Solomon to north and south. They, they were kind of at odds with one another. And both north and south were swept away by other powers. Israel swept away by Assyria, and Judah, the southern kingdom, swept away later on by Babylon. And never again was Israel as powerful as it, as it had been under David and Solomon. The borders were never that big. The armies weren't uh, as effective. The towns weren't as prosperous. Israel had not seen that level of power, influence, prosperity ever again. So these things that we read about, the house, the kingdom, the throne, or the lineage, the environment, and the authority of David seems to have fed away. And so what was God talking about here? I mean, seriously. I mean, it didn't seem to last. And, and didn't God say something about forever? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that's a, 
we don't talk about the kingdom of Israel anymore. We have a nation of Israel, but it's not really the same thing. And there are all kinds of problems going on over there at this point in time too. And, and so wait a second. Was God just kidding about that? Or was God wrong? Hmm. Now I think those are great questions. Oh, and by the way, God is not afraid of your questions. And I think they're appropriate to, to ask and try to wrestle with a little bit, but then eventually you have to contend with someone named Jesus. Because remember, Matthew taught us that Jesus had the lineage of King David. Joseph was of the house and line of David, and so Jesus is considered part of the line of David. Check. When Jesus walked the earth, he talked about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God looked very different than most kingdoms. And he taught us that if you look hard enough in the word, that you can find all sorts of things about the kingdom. And no, it may not be a political kingdom, but it is a kingdom nonetheless, because it is a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom of equilibrium. It is a kingdom where the rule and reign of Jesus resides. Check. And it seems to me that Jesus carried real authority, not political authority. He commanded the weather. Demons, even sickness and death. Don't believe me? Read Mark chapter 5. Rock your world. That's real authority. Oh, and by the way, he still commands those things. Check. So he wasn't kidding and he wasn't wrong. It just looks a little different. But make no mistake that the house and the kingdom and the throne are still around. And they're just, they're not only just as powerful, they're more powerful because of Jesus. And I think what this does is that when we read this story and we see kind of how all of these things begin to fit together and we walk that storyline through, it testifies to the character and nature of God. What he says, he does. And you can trust him. So that thing that's bugging you, whatever it is, maybe you ought to listen. That person you can't stand, maybe you ought to talk to Jesus about that one. What he says, he does. So I want you to do something. And um, um, I'm going to kind of piggyback off what Gina was praying about. <clears throat> if you have a journal, and I suggest you have one because I think it's important to write these things down. What I'm going to ask you to do is I want you to, to take a moment and think. I know it's hard, it's okay, but YouTube and TV can wait, right? You can do this. Trust that you, that you can do this. I want you to take a moment, I want you to list your top five blessings, or three. 
Well, I don't have any blessings. You breathing? Huh. Yeah, you got plenty of blessings. But I want you to list them down. You get to decide what they are. What you think is a blessing from God, I want you to write it down. Things that are clearly, in your mind, given to you by him. And then what I want you to do, you can pray, you can write it down, I want you to receive those blessings. God, you have given this and I receive it. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be flowery language. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It can be very simple. Lord, if this is what you said, then do it. Lord, I receive those things that you have given. I want you to understand the gift. And the other thing that I don't want is I don't want any false sense of humility here, right? Because sometimes um, shame masks itself as humility. So none of this, oh, I'm so unworthy, and God, you're so, right? You are a daughter and son of the living God. That's your identity, and if God gives you a gift, you receive it in joy and no false sense of humility, no sense of shame here. Shame has no business in this. If God has given it, it's because he loves you. And the humility is, oh God, thank you for loving me. That's the humility part. Nothing more, nothing less. You need to start in that position, that you are a daughter and son of the living God, and he loves to give good gifts. This is why Jesus gave that uh, that teaching during the, sermon on, during the Sermon on the Mount when he says, look, how many of you, when your kids ask you for bread, give them a stone? Or ask you for meat, you give them a snake? Which <laughs> just cracks me up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You who are evil, thanks, Jesus, how much more does your perfect father love you? That's what he was trying to get at, is that if you are receiving a blessing, it is because he is a good father, and worship is appropriate, and you need to receive it just like David did. Receive that blessing, and live in joy of receiving a blessing from a father who loves you. That's your challenge this week. I want you to try it. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are good. We declare it now together as a church family, as a church body, as we are gathered here in this place, you are good. No doubt about it. Our, our worship is appropriate because you are good, no matter what answer you give us. And every person sitting in this room, Lord, I declare, has received some blessing from you. Holy Spirit, open their minds to exactly what it is as they begin to wrestle through that and perhaps even write it down. And God, I pray that they would have the courage to leave shame behind and receive in joy what you have given them. And God, help us to see that there's this continuing idea of blessing because we follow you. And I pray that even today, even today, you would just <laughs> kind of sneak in to somebody's life, somebody's heart, and for a moment, tell them, you're my daughter, you're my son. I give you these things because I'm good and I have your best interest at heart. 
Lord, I pray against the voice of shame, those (laughs) terrible recordings that play over and over in our mind that tell us that somehow we're not good enough or we're not smart enough or strong enough. Those have no place in the body of Christ. In the name of Jesus, I command them to be silent right now. That your people may only hear your voice and that Holy Spirit that you would begin to speak to the hearts and minds of the people that belong to you. And that that wellspring of joy would begin to just come up. Because that too is a blessing. God, you have blessed this church. We are grateful. The things that you have spoken over this church, oh, do it. We want to be a part of that. Speak to us, Lord. What is it that you want us to know? As we sing this last song, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and do what only you can do in Jesus' name.